Well, GRX, we continue in our series in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Acts chapter 17? It's Acts chapter 17. Uh, we've looked in the book of Acts at uh, the spread of the gospel throughout the world. We've looked at um, how the Apostle Paul has been called as a missionary to the Gentiles, as a missionary to those who stand outside of the people of Israel. And we've looked at how Paul has been on this missionary journey, how he has been called to mission by God, to go into the world and to make disciples, to go into the world and to bless people. And we've seen Paul on these missionary journeys, how he has gone to these different places and preached the gospel to the people of Israel. And they've received it until he wanted to give it to those who were outside of the people. And then generally the pattern is that Paul would be beaten or stoned and thrown out of the city and he would go on to the next place where he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ until they would do the same thing over and over and over again. This is Paul's mission. This is what Paul does. This is his life. It's his calling. And this is how in the very, very early stages, the very early years after Jesus' death and his resurrection, this is how the gospel spread into the world. It spread through missionaries like Paul who would go into the world and preach the gospel regardless of the consequences. Where we're going to join Paul today, he has been in Philippi where he found himself in a jail and miraculously escaped. And then he's gone to Thessalonica where he has been beaten and thrown out of the city. And he's gone into Berea where it got so bad that he had to be smuggled out of the city at night on a boat by himself without his companions, Silas and Timothy. And that's where we find Paul. We find him as he gets off of the boat in Athens, by himself, alone, in a city of hundreds of thousands of people. And this is where we join him, and we're going to start, we're going to pick it up in Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul, while Paul was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from there. But some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. By this time, Paul is a well-seasoned traveler. We've talked about the different cities that he's visited, and here he gets off the boat in the harbor at Athens. As he comes into the city, a very, very large city, the wall that surrounded the inner city of Athens had a circumference of between five and six miles. And he comes in, and immediately he's probably faced with a structure, the, uh, the Hephaestium. The Hephaestium appears before him, a massive temple that is dedicated to the god Hephaestus and the goddess Athena. And he goes from there into the, the Greek agora, the marketplace. This is where things are bought and sold. This is where idols are worshipped. This is where altars are made. As a matter of fact, in the marketplace, this place would have been an absolute circus. This place would have been the place that you could go to find any pleasure that you wanted. It would have been a place where sexuality was married with religion and people would be expressing their faith in all sorts of ways. In the middle of the Agora, Paul would have seen the, the horologion. It's a 40-foot-tall octagonal structure made out of marble. And around the top were engraved the images of the, uh, of the eight wind gods. It was a water clock. By it, they would tell time. And here, I imagine, is where Paul found his place. This is where Paul camped, and he set out to preach the gospel, to speak to anyone, to grab anyone, who would be there to listen. Among all of the, the circus of pleasure and sin and idolatry that was happening around him, this is where Paul preached the gospel. From the horologian, he could look up to the center of the city where he would see the Acropolis. The Acropolis was, um, it was a 500-foot-tall limestone plateau upon which uh, the most beautiful temples in the city were built. It was a thousand feet long and 500 feet wide. And upon, uh, upon the Acropolis, you can see it barely. You can see it on the left in the middle with the statue of Athena rising above it is the Parthenon. The Parthenon is the crown jewel of the Acropolis. It's a temple that is dedicated to the goddess Athena. It's 221 feet wide, 101 feet, 221 feet long, 101 feet wide. It's 23,000 square feet dedicated to the goddess. And in the middle of it is a 39-foot statue of Athena. Holding up the marble roof are 34-foot columns made of marble at the base, six foot in diameter, all dedicated to the worship of the goddess Athena. 
And here Paul preaches. He is in the marketplace among the idols, and he is looking up below their temples. He is a lone voice against the backdrop of a world that is God-crazy. And he proclaims the one God that they do not know. And as he does, someone hears him. A group of people, actually, they, they hear him. The way that you might hear a crazy street preacher at the corner of Powell and Market in San Francisco. These are the philosophers. They hear him talking and they want to know more of what he has to say. Not because they're interested, but because they're frustrated a little bit. They kind of chuckle under their breath. These are the scholastics of the day. They've gone to every Ivy League school that there is. And they chuckle at his ignorance because he's preaching about the resurrection and none of these philosophers had any concept of what the resurrection was. They say that he is preaching foreign divinities and it's because they completely misunderstand what Paul is saying. They think that he's preaching more than one God because they don't have this concept of resurrection. And the Greek word for resurrection is anastasios. It's a feminine word. And they think that Paul is talking about Jesus and his cohort, Anastasia. Jesus and his girlfriend, basically. His goddess girlfriend. So he's preaching foreign divinities. And they say, why don't you come and share with us in the Areopagus? And this is not a friendly invitation. This is a grab-you-by-the-crook-of-your-arm kind of invitation. Like, hey, you're going to come with us, and if we don't like what you have to say, you're going to answer. You know this because the charge is preaching foreign divinities. It was only a few hundred years earlier that, uh, uh, that the Greeks had taken uh, another philosopher, Socrates, and charged him with preaching foreign divinities and taking him to the very place that they were taking Paul, the Areopagus. Socrates defended himself and he was condemned to death. The stakes are pretty high here. And Paul enters into this place with the Epicureans on one side and the Stoics on the other. And the Epicureans were a group of philosophers who they did not believe that you could communicate with the gods. The gods were so far away that it didn't even matter. We're so separated, it doesn't matter. And what this led to was a type of hedonism. The, the, the absolute greatest value that we could have is pleasure, physical pleasure and peace within ourselves. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that gods, the gods were everywhere. They're all around us. They're in everything. And in fact, in a certain sense, they're within us. And so they believed that when we die, we just get absorbed back into God. And here Paul has to stand and he has to speak the one true God in the midst of these two schools. There's more than a little bit of a threat here. And what Paul does in the full view of the Acropolis, if you put up the picture of the Areopagus, it was here. Uh, the, the building is not here now, but on this, in the foreground on this cropping of rock is where the Areopagus would have stood in full view of the Acropolis, of the Parthenon behind, and of the Agora below. And what Paul does is uh, he lays out the gospel and he does it brilliantly. What he does is he, he takes what they already believe. He takes what they already know, what is in their hearts, and he shows it to them within the revelation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, rhetorically, he latches on to this altar this altar that he saw in the marketplace, it would have probably looked something like this. Almost this. No. Somewhere. We'll find it. There it is. 
It probably would have looked a little something like this. This altar that he'd seen in the marketplace that had the inscription to an unknown God. What Paul does is he latches on to a third way, a middle ground between uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. It was the way of the academics. This was a group in Athens that said, you know what? We probably don't have enough proof one way or the other to say that the gods exist or they don't exist. We just can't know. You and me would call this agnosticism. And so one group of agnostics would say, hey, we can't know and that's the end of it, so I'm not going to care. That would be an apathetic agnosticism. But there's this other kind of agnosticism among this group of people in Athens. It's an open agnosticism where they said, you know what, there must be something. There must be something that is beyond us, something that is bigger than us, something that we've been longing for, something that's uh, more than we realized or more than we hoped for. There must be something out there. Even if I don't know what it is, I can feel it, and I'm open. And until I find him, I'm going to keep this space open. I'm going to set down this altar to the unknown God to mark my belief that he must be there. And Paul assumes that this is the belief of the person who sets up the altar to the unknown God. And what he says in the middle of the Areopagus, in the middle of the philosophers, what he says is this. What you guys said was unknown. Well, now it's known. And it was always there to begin with. It was always there all along. God has always, always been here. And he has always intended you to find him. If you look back to the text, Verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he himself needed anything, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And he's actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul says we have been feeling our way towards him our whole lives, not knowing who he is, knowing that something is there in the shadows and there's an image and a shadow of him that we just can't put our finger on. And Paul is saying, I'm telling you that he is here. You did not know him. And now he has been fully revealed in the revelation and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, times of ignorance are now gone. He's in front of you. So now believe in this God who is now known because Jesus makes the unknown God known. It's pretty high drama, don't you think? Pretty big time drama, Paul standing in the middle of this, this you know, just a real pagus, whatever it might have looked like, with one group on one side and one group on the other and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ fearlessly. I imagine him pointing up to the Acropolis, to the Parthenon, and saying, the God that you did not know is not in temples. You guys got it wrong. Uh, the God that you did not know is right here. Fearless. Now, I used to believe that the time of Paul for the time of Jesus and the time that we live in uh, were really different. 
that a lot of things happened back then that don't happen now, and it's really hard to relate to them because now what our society tells us is that we are full of progress and we are the most advanced society in the history of the world and we are learned and we have our philosophies and we have our beliefs and we have our Apple MacBooks and our iPhones. How could we be even similar to the time of Paul? But the more I think about it, actually I think that our time is exactly the same as Paul's time. There's really not that much of a difference at all. The biggest difference, I think, is that for Paul, as he entered into the city of Athens, all this stuff was just right out there in the open. These altars, these temples, these altars to the unknown gods, the, the, the sexual religion, it's just right out there in the open. And for us, I think all the same things are there. They're just hidden. They're there, but they're behind a veil. The truth is that we walk into our cities, Take San Francisco, for example. And we see the altars to commerce and trade. We see the altars to profit, to fashion. We see beautiful architecture that's dedicated to civil government or to Nike Town. And we see the marketplace uh, with, thankfully, Blondie's Pizza and uh, Rasputin Music right next to it. We walk down the streets, and as we do, we walk someplace in between the people around us and the gods that we make for ourselves, the gods that we worship. And of course, there are the altars to the unknown gods. You've seen these. You may not realize that you've seen these, but you've seen them because they're all over the place. They're all over the place in the marketplace. Anytime that we see some kind of cultural artifact, anytime that we hear a conversation going on where we realize that the question has to do with the existence of God and whether God is there or whether God is not there or whether God is close or whether God is far or which path is the true path to God. Anytime we see some piece of art, some film, we hear a conversation that has to do with that. What we're doing is we're seeing an altar to the unknown God. We're seeing a heart that is hopefully open to the possibility that God is there. A heart that is asking the question, where is He? You've heard this when you've been to Starbucks. Uh, you know Starbucks? Uh, the place where we go where we buy a cup of coffee that has a, a symbol on it of uh, the... Uh, of the mermaid siren goddess from 15th century Norse literature. Did you know that? When we put the goddess with our cup of coffee on our table and we have a conversation or we overhear a conversation of people talking about God and you hear somebody say, you know, I don't understand it. There are so many faiths. There are so many religions. And I just, uh, there's not enough evidence to know. So I just think that they're probably all the same. They're probably all the same, and we probably get to God no matter which path we take. Now, when you hear that conversation, when you're engaged in that conversation, what you're hearing is an altar to the unknown God. You're hearing somebody who might just possibly have the windows of their heart open for the one true God who is unknown to them uh, to come in and fill it up and mend it. I, I see these altars all the time, especially in film, because I really like movies. 
And I really like the intersection between faith and the gospel. Here, when we watch movies, uh, we see the stories that we tell about ourselves to our society, to, to ourselves. The stories that we tell about our gods, and they're on display for all of our consumption for $11 a person. You go into a movie, a, a film like Cold Mountain. Has anybody ever seen Cold Mountain? No? Some people have seen Cold Mountain? Cold Mountain? It's all romantic and Civil War and stuff, so... In this picture, as in many pictures, his hands are not blue. They're supposed to be red. We busted a cable today. But anyway, Cold Mountain tells the story of a Civil War soldier who leaves his true love to go to fight a war that he believed in. And after injury upon injury, after atrocious act after atrocious act that he commits, he decides that this isn't worth it. And he breaks ranks and he leaves. He deserts. And he tries to make his way back to his one true love. And as he does, he, he laments what he has become. And he looks within his heart and he says, I have done so much evil. I have killed my enemy over and over and over again. Is there anything within me that is worth salvaging? Is there anything within me that can be redeemed? And what he's asking in the film is, uh, how do we find redemption? How do we find redemption? In this film in particular, he finds redemption as he comes home and he, he actually engages with the woman that he loves. And they have a makeshift wedding ceremony and one night together before the next day he has to do battle with the last vestiges of the war and the world around them that's trying to keep them apart. And as he does, he, he vanquishes the evil around them. But in the process, he's shot. He's shot and he falls to the ground in this cruciform position with blood on his hands and blood coming from his side. And if you miss the Christ imagery here, he has a halo. And the film asks, how are we redeemed? How are we redeemed from that within us that is sin? And to reinforce the image at the end of the film, it's the, the epilogue seven years later. And Nicole Kidman and her daughter conceived on the only night that they were together. And she said, it's lambing season on the farm. One lamb has died and one lamb has been abandoned by its mother. And she cuts the skin off of the one lamb, the dead lamb, and puts it onto the orphaned lamb so the dead lamb's mother will adopt it. Clothed in the skin of the Lamb. I'm not saying a film like Cold Mountain has its theology completely right, but what I'm saying is that it's asking spiritual questions that demand spiritual answers. How are we redeemed in the world? How can what's broken inside us be fixed? And I see it very much as a temple, as an altar, as a marking place to the unknown God. You look at another film like Romeo and Juliet, not the old dumb one, the one in 1994, Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio. You remember this because Leonardo DiCaprio was hot. <laughs> Maybe. Romeo and Juliet, and this is set in a modern setting. And what you have is the ancient story of uh, two people who are absolutely in love, who are fighting the world around them, the craziness of the world around them that is trying so hard to pull them apart. 
asking the question, how do we, how do we get away from the world around us that blocks us in? How do we find true love? What is it that separates us from the world to find our ultimate release, our ultimate escape? In this version of the film, it's literally an altar. It's literally an altar with neon crosses all around it. And you see the Romeo and Juliet in love. You can't really see it, actually. <laughs> but they fall dead together, and it is love. It is romantic love that has saved them from the world. Now, you and me as Christians, people who believe in the Bible, would say actually what saves us in the world is Christ. But the film asks a spiritual question, and it gives a spiritual answer. How are we saved from the world around us? Through love. And this isn't the only place that we see this. I mean, you could look at movies all day long. What happens is that we are longing for something beyond ourselves. And we make an altar to an unknown God that is erected in the hope that we might feel our way to the one that we sense is there. To the one whose name is written on our hearts. And we fill that altar with substitutes because our world is ignorant of who it is that belongs there. We see it everywhere in museums that are filled with magnificent and horrible works of art that ask marvelous questions of the divine. You hear it when you turn on your radio. You hear Joan Osborne singing, What If God Was One of Us? It's like the middle of my high school years right there. You see it in a band like Depeche Mode singing a song, Blasphemous Rumors. Even their cover looks like Michelangelo at the Sistine Chapel. Blasphemous Rumors where they ask, in essence, if God exists, why is there evil? They don't discount the existence of God, but they want to know. They're asking the question. They're saying, answer it for me. If God is good, why is there evil? You hear it in a song like uh, from the band Bad Religion. What a great name for a band. It's a punk rock band. Where they sing in the, in the song called Sorrow. They sing about the only true Messiah who can save us from ourselves. And then they say, uh, when that happens, there will be sorrow no more. They never name the true Messiah. And as a matter of fact, uh, the members of the band are not religious whatsoever. Uh, bad religion. Uh, actually, religion is bad for them. But they're asking the question, who is going to save us from the sorrow that is around us? And the spiritual question demands a spiritual answer. And the way I see it is that they're altars to the unknown God. Our world walks somewhere between the gods that we create and the God who is there. In Paul's time and in our time, we see the longing for him can be seen everywhere. We fill our empty hearts with images and shadows of that one true God. And Paul says, you don't have to. God is here. God is close. He always has been because in him we live and we move and we have our being. And Jesus is the one who reveals him. 
So walk away from your temples. Uh, Walk your way from your ignorance and mend your hearts with the God who is here, the God who has been here all along. Because Jesus makes the unknown God known. He makes the unknown God known. He fills up that space between our knowing and our unknowing, the space between our hearts and the God who gave us our hearts. There's at least two things that I can see that come out of this. There's probably more, but we'll just address two. Uh, The first is this. If you're someone who's here today who is searching for God, someone who's here today who has been seeking God, who uh, you felt him in your heart, you believe that he might be there, but you're not quite sure how to find him, I want you to know that it's Jesus who makes that God known. He's the one that you're looking for. He is the one who will give you rest from your searching. He says, come to me, all ye who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives us peace from our search. If that's you... Just come to God through the one who has made him known. Join your story to his and find rest from that search because Jesus is the one who makes that unknown God known. Jesus is the one who fills the window of your heart. The second thing is uh, to the church. The church. Those of you who, uh, who are followers of Jesus. Paul's example here sets an example for us. And I want you to know and be clear about this. You are the keepers of the space between. You're the ones who keep that space between, who, who look at that, uh, that distance between how our society looks for God and the one true God. You are the one who monitors that space between our hearts and God's. You are the ones who watch and listen and look for uh, these altars to the unknown gods. You hear them in the conversations. You, You watch them in movies. You hear them in song. You see them in art. You watch them in, in people's actions. You watch and you look for where God is working in people's lives and in people's hearts. And you look to stand there, just as Paul did in the middle of the Areopagus between the Epicureans and the Stoics, and you look to stand there in that space between and tell people, it is Jesus that you're looking for. It is Jesus who's been raised from the dead, who God has appointed, who will come again, who will end history. It is Jesus more than anything who is written on your heart and who you are looking for. And as in Christ, uh, you live and you move and you have your being, you stand between and you show people the way. If we want to talk about mission, 
That's a pretty good mission. Wherever we are, wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, we stand between and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one who makes the unknown God known. So let me pray for us. Father, this morning we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for everything that your word tells us about our world and about ourself. Father, the world we live in is not so much different from Paul's. It's the same world. It's the same place. It's just a different time, different location. But we as humans do the same things. And Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you, you did not just leave us to feel our way along that we might find you. But in our feeling and in our longing and in our hoping and our looking, you have given to us your Son. Your Son in whom we live and move and have our being who is always close, who has always been close. Father, I pray, I pray for those here uh, who may be seeking, who may be seeking your will, who may be seeking you to fill their hearts. Father, I pray that you would fill their hearts, that you would come to them right now. If that's you here this morning, if that's you and you want to join your story to Christ, if you want Christ to come in, come into the windows of your soul and to mend whatever it is that's inside of you, to direct you to God. Then I pray that you would pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I pray that you come into my heart Forgive me of my sins. If you pray that prayer, can you just look up at me? Just look up at me. Okay. And Father, as the church, I pray, I pray, Father, that... Uh, you would direct us as we go into your world, that we would see these altars that aren't as obvious as they were for Paul. But direct us to see what is there and, and to meet those questions with your gospel and your love. But Father, prepare us for this offering this morning that we give out of what you have already given to us and that what we give would be used to build your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.